Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Fidelity Law Group here at Wright, Constable, and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'm joined by my special guest, Mr. Joseph Healy, PE, Director of Engineering and Project Management in the New York office of Cashin, Spinelli, and Ferretti. Mr. Healy uh, has a Bachelor of Science degree in Engineering with concentrations in Mechanical and Electrical Engineering and a Master's of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering. Joe's a knowledgeable professional engineer with experience in the design and implementation of mechanical systems and equipment, as well as large and small scale electrical systems. With over 14 years uh, in, the, in the engineering, construction management and surety consulting industry, he has experience in the drafting and development of contract documents. Uh, in his capacity as a surety engineering professional, Mr. Healy has managed performance bond claims that include project investigation, engineering analysis, cost to complete, relet, project completion management, etc. Mr. Healy is well-versed in all aspects of claims investigation, including the analysis of payment bond claims and, and claim litigation support. Well, welcome, Joe, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. Good to have you. So, again, thank you to all our listeners and supporters of Surety today, um, and you can Listen to any one of our, uh, all or any of our prior 82 episodes, uh, anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms, Surety Today at uh, our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean, just search for Surety Today, and on our micro site at uh, suretytoday.net. We're rapidly closing in on 10,000 downloads of our, of our podcast, so that's a lot of a lot of learning, a lot of talking. As always, we, uh, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will uh, unmute the line at the end if you have any questions. Today, Joe and I are going to talk about understanding the project general and special conditions. General conditions and special conditions are an important part of the, the primary construction documents you know, on every project, along with the, the contract plans and the specifications. I think you see the special conditions a little less frequently on projects uh, than you do the general, but these documents uh, can be standardized forms, like you have the, the AIA A201, uh, or they can be manuscripted forms drafted by you know large general contractors or form documents required by governmental or inst institutional owners. Sometimes you see the contract documents being very short and, uh, and concise in which case most of the, the, the traditional contract terms will be located in the general and special conditions. Other times you'll see long detailed contracts, in which case there, there are less of the traditional contract terms in the general and special conditions. Of course, the, you know, the terms of these documents will, will also vary based on the sophistication of the general contractor or the owner or the size and complexity of the project. So. Um, you know, you, when you've been in the business a while, you see lots of different uh, versions of these, but, but all of them sort of 
uh, sort of track along the same line. So, Joe, start us off by talking, you know, about the basics here. What are general and special conditions? So, right from the get-go, general conditions will detail the rights, responsibilities, and requirements for each party that executes a construction document or a construction contract. So, that'll be the owner, the contractor, the architect, the subcontractors. Typically, and specifically under contractor responsibilities, you're going to find things like supervision and site superintendents for the project, uh, labor, working hours, and phasing of the project. And that's, you know, Mike, to your point about the size, location, specificity of the contract itself, uh, this is going to vary a lot, you know, and, and in my experience, Something like a uh, a city agency that deals with you know building schools is going to show phasing where work occurs you know mostly at night or on weekends. Uh, projects that occur in a police department, which is a building that's occupied 24/7, or a hospital, is going to have very specific phasing for contract work. That's not your typical you know start at seven, end at 3:30 throughout the week. Uh, other conditions you're going to find under contractor responsibilities are services, materials, and equipment, like you might see in the Buy American Act. Uh, details about project schedule, uh, substitutes, or equals. And that's important from a material standpoint because you may see provisions in the general conditions of a contract that say if you don't want to use this specified material on our project, you can substitute something as an equal, which is going to be understood to be exactly the same, same warranties, same material properties, so on and so forth, or a substitute. And a substitute may not necessarily be exactly the same thing. It might not be a one-for-one -one switch. So it's important to understand the differentiation between the two. Some other provisions that you're, you're technically going to see that are specifically the contractor's responsibilities are patent fees laws and regulations, taxes, and tax-exempt status. On a lot of state or federal projects, you may have uh, tax exemptions, which is important in, in a completion standpoint because if you're seeking bids from contractors on a tax-exempt job, the first thing you're going to check for is see if you get charged for taxes. Uh, you're also going to see the use of the site and the adjacent areas, how the contract deals with record documents, some owners, some GCs, might require that record documents are submitted throughout the project, whereas others really only care about it at the end. Uh, safety and protection, shop drawings, contractor's general warranty, indemnification, and, and I'm rattling these off, but these are, these are items that you'll typically see that are specifically the contractor's responsibilities. Now, the general conditions themselves are going to have a, a table of contents, and from 10,000 feet, some typical categories that you'll see in the, the table of contents for the general conditions of a project would generally start with definitions, where we're going to define terms that are specific to this project. Uh, we're also going to list what the contract documents are. And that's going to be an important point that I'd like to circle back to when we talk about some anecdotal experience. There's also going to be provisions about changes in the work, and that's critically important. We're going to define what a change order is and, and what would preclude 
a bond principal, you know, a, a contractor from seeking or or being reimbursed for a change order. Uh, there's also very important provisions about timing. You will see in the table of contents, time is of the essence, timing for notice, time for completion, liquidated damages, actual damage, payments. You're, you're going to see timing for all of these items, uh, typically in your general conditions. Now, in addition to that, you'll also see categories in this table of contents for claims and disputes, things that we deal with, like defaults and termination, insurance and bonds. And you'll also see, typically, uh, provisions for severability, you know, along the lines of if an article or a section of this contract, of these general conditions, are, are deemed unenforceable. It doesn't mean that the whole general conditions are unenforceable. Now, circling back to rights, responsibilities, requirements uh, within general conditions, in my experience, there are usually some pretty strict provisions as far as timing goes that can be found in general conditions. And some of the timing provisions can be very simple and very straightforward along the lines of to the extent that you know, our contractor, a bond principal, uh, experiences what may result in a change order. You have three days to notify the bond obligee, the GC or the owner, of this change condition. And if you don't do so in that time period, you will have waived your right to seek a change order. And that's very important, you know, from a completion standpoint, because either moving forward with our bond principal, moving forward with the completing contractor in a takeover scenario, we have to be cognizant of these timing provisions because we may unknowingly waive rights to seek compensation for change orders. Now, in addition to the simple timing uh, provisions that, you know, that will flow into change orders, there are also conditions within general conditions uh, that deal with liquidated damages actual damages and or consequential damages. And just, you know, for for a refresher, liquidated damages are generally when actual damages are unquantifiable or difficult to quantify. So it'll be a set dollar value per day, $500 a day, $1,500 a day, so on and so forth. Uh, I, I've had certain projects that are, you know, infrastructure projects or uh, airports or MTA projects where liquidated damages may be quantified uh, you know, by the hour or by the minute. So it's something to really pay attention to. Uh, separate from liquidated damages, you can have actual damages, which are just like they sound, the actual costs incurred by the owner because of the inability to use a space for a set period of time. And then lastly, uh, there may be consequential damages, which are damages for the harm done to the owner as a result of not being able to use that space or use that piece of equipment or whatever it may be. Now, general conditions usually represent the standard boilerplate at the front end of the construction document right after the contract itself. They're both included in public sector and private sector projects, and it's important to keep in mind that general conditions are different than general requirements. They sound very similar. 
but general requirements are typically found in the very beginning of the technical specifications book for a project, and those will focus more heavily on the scope of work for the project, how submittals are handled, quality assurance, quality control, mobilization of the job, and those are more technical direction for the contractor as to the work itself as opposed to the rights, responsibilities, and requirements for the parties uh, in the contract. Now, circling back to this whole overall discussion of general conditions, it's important to understand the totality of the general conditions and the fact that they can both work to the benefit and the detriment of the surety during the completion phase of a project. Knowing the contract and its general conditions and also its supplemental conditions can allow the, the claims manager to really understand the playing field for the project, to really understand what he or she is up against. Now, a review of these general conditions and the special conditions that, that would generally follow if special conditions, supplemental conditions are part of the contract, that may dictate the manner in which the surety proceeds on completion for the project, whether this is going to be a takeover scenario or a tender scenario. All right. Thank you for that. So we, we, we've got the contract document. We've got the general conditions. And then potentially we have the special conditions as well, each of which is a separate document. And there's sometimes uh, some overlap in the terms of each. So how do the, the general and special conditions impact the hierarchy of the contract? So typically what we'll see at, at the very top of that hierarchy is the contract itself. What follows after the contract itself is the general conditions, which are then followed by the special conditions. You know, if, if they exist, then the specs, then the drawings. And, and just to circle back to the special conditions themselves, in my experience, special conditions, supplemental conditions, addenda to general conditions, however it's characterized, and, and usually it's, I, I've seen it shown as special conditions, that's the addition or the removal of specific rights and obligations in the general conditions of the contract. So typically in your contract itself or within the table of contents in, in the general conditions, you're going to see a layout of of how these contract documents work. And I would keep an eye out to see if there are any special supplemental conditions because those are going to add, take away from, or just alter the general conditions uh, themselves. And just you know, fr from experience, in the case of a general contractor, if a general contractor is our obligee on a project, the general conditions may be a boilerplate requirement. It's a boilerplate document that's the same for every single one of their subcontracts. And then the special conditions may be more tailored toward what this specific project is. So there may be sections of the general conditions that are no longer applicable because of this project. There may be sections that need to be added because of this project. Uh, typically, if you're working you know, for a large GC, your bond principal is a subcontractor to a, a national general contractor, there may be sections of, a, of, of special conditions or supplemental conditions 
that are tailored to you know the state where this work is occurring uh, and the general conditions themselves are just the same document for for every project so you may see an instance where your general conditions are article 1 through 21 that lays out you know the totality of the project but then you move on to the special conditions and you'll see something along the lines of replace the language in article 3 of the general conditions with the following text and that will you know that will adjust where you're at as far as your contract goes so when reviewing the totality of a bond principles contract it's always good practice to identify locate and read the special or supplemental conditions to the extent that they exist and to see how they'll alter the general conditions of a contract now as far as the hierarchy goes and and the overall discussion of general conditions itself it's important to recognize that city agencies working with the federal government any large bond obligee sometimes even very large GCs those general condition conditions are going to be a standard document that gets updated every so often every so many years so it's always important to make sure that the general conditions are actually applicable to that specific project itself uh, if you are not provided the general conditions with the contract one it's always good practice to get it directly from the bond obligee to ensure you have the correct copy of the general conditions two it's always important to check the date of those general conditions to make sure that they apply now because the general conditions are a I should say for the most part a standard boilerplate agreement that really doesn't change from contract to contract if you if you're dealing with an intelligent obligee that obligee will have a bit of home field advantage the obligee will understand the contract likely better than you do at least in the beginning because they've dealt with it before so it's something to keep in mind that you're effectively the away team and, and you got to understand the ground that you're that you're walking on you know before you can run now as far as this overall general discussion of, of general conditions goes uh, it's also important to understand on federal contracts that those contracts those general conditions will incorporate the federal acquisition regulation or the FAR uh, which is a whole subset of categories requirements so on and so forth uh, so it's just something to keep in mind as you move forward with different agencies uh, different government entities that reading every word and understanding the referenced documents to what may be an already you know very drawn out set of general conditions is extremely important yeah that's a that's a good point there Joe when you when you're looking at the the contract documents the general conditions special conditions um, you know that's where you're going to find other documents standards manuals etc etc being incorporated by reference so you'll have things like SMACNA sections or ASTM standards or building codes and you mentioned the FAR uh, Maryland we have the COMAR the code of Maryland acquisition regulations uh, and, and all of those incorporated documents become part of the terms uh, and requirements of the contract documents so you can't fully understand the scope and, uh, and requirements of the contract until you know 
what is incorporated by reference. Another important point that Joe touched on uh, for, for contract analysis and interpretation, uh, look for an order of precedence clause, which will usually be in the general condition. Sometimes it's in the contract. Uh, an order of precedence clause is a provision which identifies the order in which the various contract documents are prioritized when resolving a conflict or an ambiguity within the contract document. So the order of precedence clause will dictate which terms in the documents will be controlling. The theory is that you know, you'll, you'll always know that there's a, a clause in the contract which will break the tie, so to speak, between conflicting provisions. So that'll help when you have these, you know, this hierarchy of these documents and, and if they say things that are inconsistent or, or conflicting or, or ambiguous, then that order of precedence clause sometimes will help. So that's something to look for. So Joe, let's talk next about, you know, what are some of the terms and provisions that you've seen in general and or specific, uh, special conditions uh, that you found interesting over the years? Well, there's a bunch of them. Uh, one that, that jumps out at me is the general conditions for the New York City School Construction Authority. Uh, we do a lot of SCA work and the school construction authority has a very specific set of general conditions and very specific terminology. There's an acronym for almost anything at the SCA, which itself is an acronym. So one is Article 7 in the SCA's general conditions, which is for changes in work. And, and basically what that dictates is you as a contractor need to be issued a notice of direction or an NOD if you are to proceed on a change order and you're going to get paid for the change order and specifically if you as the contractor elect to begin work on that change order without a written notice of direction you are a volunteer and we've gone through this time and time again with the SCA and it's it's in black and white in the general conditions and uh, it happens quite frequently where We've got contractors that say, I've got a valid change with the SCA. All I need to do is negotiate it. And we say, where's your NOD? And they say, I never got one. Uh, so that's, that's one example. Another is, a, as far as a general notice requirement goes, uh, in a contract that we had in North Carolina, uh, where, interestingly, the specifications for the project were not part of the original contract documents. Um, the specifications were issued at a later date. Although the specifications were issued at a later date, uh, the general conditions for the contract required if any changes were brought to the subcontractor's attention, who was our bond principal in this instance, uh, the bond obligee needed to be notified within three calendar days of any potential change. Unfortunately, the addition of the specifications to the contract documents at a later date uh, added a provision that the conduit, the low voltage conduit for the project needed to be colored. It needed to actually come from the manufacturer uh, in a certain color based on the use of the conduit. And our bond principal was not aware of the provision and did not notify the bond obligee of the change. So it's another instance where there's a specific notice provision, uh, something changed, and unfortunately the, the bond principal did not notify the obligee of the change. I've also seen, uh, interestingly, 
in general conditions, specifically one for a, a very large GC that does work in several states, a provision in the general conditions that the Prompt Payment Act does not apply to this project. So for anyone listening that's, that's out of New York, uh, the Prompt Payment Act in New York, and not being an attorney, but just you know uh, paraphrasing it, means regardless of the GC receiving payment from the owner, uh, that GC needs to pay subcontractors, suppliers, so on and so forth within a reasonable period of time. So this is an instance where the general conditions are not abiding by statute. It's, it's literally saying that the uh, statute in New York State does not apply to this contract, uh, which did not hold up, but it's just an interesting provision you know, that you come across and you say, I don't really know about that one. Uh, and the last anecdote that, that I've got for this is a, a project that we had with the Corps of Engineers um, had a pretty onerous provision about latent defects. And, and the way the provision came up was there was a reference to a, uh, a section of the federal acquisition regulation within the general conditions. Uh, nothing more than, than just the FAR number. And if anyone's curious, I can, I can look it up for you. But uh, basically that warranties are warranties, the contract is the contract, but to the extent that any latent defects, being a defined term, uh, manifest, the contractor is responsible for them pretty much indefinitely. Uh, and it came back to bite us because we had a section of pipe that was not properly installed that was buried underground that years later we had to uh, unearth, repair, and, uh, and, and backfill because of that section of the general conditions that reference the FAR. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one when, when you've got basically unlimited liability. So following up on, on one of the points that Joe made, you, you do have to be careful about the terms in the general or special conditions that are contrary to local law. A lot of times, the, as, as Joe noted, the GC will, will have these form documents and the, created in, a, in another state, and, and uh, you know they, 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 don't, they don't take into account the local law. So you've got provisions like pay if paid, no damages for delay, uh, or overly broad indemnification provisions, and these things may not be, may not be valid or enforceable under your local law. So when you see those, it's always good to, to take a look and see uh, whether some of these things are even enforceable in the particular jurisdiction. And, and a lot of those sort of contingent pay clauses and all of that vary from state to state and, and vary whether they're enforceable as to the surety or not as well, whether the surety can enforce them. So just because the terms are in the, the general or special conditions doesn't mean necessarily enforceable. Um, another thing to watch out for is, you know, the delegation of design responsibilities through performance conditions that you might find in the general conditions or, or the specifications. Another potential problem area is when GCs, uh, is when the general or special conditions, um, you know, require use of specialized technology or software. So we had a case where, uh, where there was the fire protection sub BIM, but it turns out he was not very knowledgeable about BIM at all. And so he ended up delaying the job right out of the ground because he was fumbling around with trying to understand BIM and trying to, to implement it. And uh, that didn't go well. So Joe, uh, we've got only a few minutes left. So uh, wrap up here with what, what are some things that you can do to, to understand the general conditions and the special conditions? 
Yep, and I'll uh, I'll, I'll keep it quick. And I like this one a lot. So uh, there's some terminology I know that that goes around the contracting and the surety industry that that I love uh, of RTFC. You know, of read the freaking contract. And at CSF, whenever we hire somebody new, uh, they get a plaque that says RTFC to put on their desk, so that it's just a constant reminder of the very first thing you got to do is read every word and understand every word. And if you don't understand the language, find someone that does, uh, because it's critically important. And actually, as far as those plaques go, uh, when people do move on, a lot of times they end up taking the plaque with them because it's a good constant reminder that you've, you've got to read the black and white and you've got to understand it. Uh, another common practice that, that we do that I think is very helpful is we'll make a simple spreadsheet of the relevant terms and conditions of the contract, the general conditions, the special, special conditions. And one column cites the paragraph, another the section, another the article, whatever it is. And it specifically calls out what this article means for us or for our contractor or for our client, what it means for the bond obligee, and specifically if there's any time-sensitive items. So that just it, it manifests as a quick one or two page sheet that we can have with us throughout the completion of the contract where we could reference back you know, to the extent that a change pops up, to the extent that a delay pops up, to the extent that something pops up that, we're, you know, that we weren't otherwise expecting. And we can jump on it and we understand what our rights are and also what our responsibilities are. And the, the last thing that I'd, I'd leave it with is, you know, in general as, as a consultant, you know, for claims managers, for anyone listening, you know, just to be cognizant of the obvious, you know, construction's a risky business. Uh, and one way to mitigate that risk when completing projects is to really know the terms, the provisions, the rights, the responsibilities, and the obligations that you may be subject to. That's funny. Uh, we, 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 in the surety world, it's RTFB, read the freaking yeah. bond. Uh, some people, you know, the friendly bond, some people... <laughs> <laughs> a little more vulgar, but but yeah, you know it's funny. I give I give uh, presentations to to construction people all the time, and 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 I tell them how important it is to read the contracts because, you know, when you get into litigation, when you get into a court, it's all about the contract. I mean, it, it, you know, the judge is going to sit there and be like, well, where does it say that in the contract? What's the contract say? And it literally is the Bible. And so often, you know, people get these contract documents, they throw them in a drawer, and they don't even pay attention to them, and and that just creates uh, headaches down the road. Well, we are out of time, so I'm going to close things up here. Um, before we uh, open up for any questions, want to let everyone know the next uh, episode of Surety Today will be June 12th uh, at uh, 1230, of course. Upcoming events in the surety world uh, very soon, May 10th through the 12th, the ABA FSLC Spring Meeting will be held in, uh, in Lake Tahoe. I think it is on the Nevada side. Um, the topic is the electronic payment bond desk book. I'll be attending that conference. I hope to see you there. May 22nd, we've got the 23rd uh, annual Eastern Bond Claims Review Seminar. will be held in uh, Fairmount uh, Country Club in Chatham, New Jersey. And uh, WCS is a, is a proud sponsor of that conference. I know uh, Rich Pledger will be there from our office. I think he's speaking. Looking ahead to June, June 5th is the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association annual golf outing. Hope to see you there. June 13th is the Chicago Surety Claims Association golf outing. June 21st through the 20, 23rd is the Surety Claims Institute. 
uh, annual meeting that will be held in Cambridge, Maryland. It's our backyard. Uh, so go to our blog uh, website at wcslaw.com to see um, a calendar of surety industry events. So thank you uh, to everyone for joining me and Mr. Healy today. And thank you, Mr. Healy, for joining me today. Uh, always appreciate uh, your expertise. Okay, we're in talk mode if anybody wants to talk. Questions about general or special conditions. Sometimes we do such a good job presenting that there just are no questions, you know. <laughs> I think this is one of them. So, all right, everyone, thank you, and uh, talk to you again next month or at one of these upcoming conferences. And thanks again, Joe. Great. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.